Amen. First Peter chapter 2. Thank you, Trio. Very appropriate song for this morning. God wants to hear you sing, and this book that we've been going through helps us with that very reality. We'll dismiss our children right now, ages 3 to 7, as they head to the back going over for Children's Church. And we're in the series, First um, Peter, and we're looking at this matter of encouragement through God's enabling. And this matter of encouragement comes from hope. This book of 1 Peter is a book saturated in hope. It is something as important to us, that is hope, as water is to a fish, as electricity is to a light bulb, as air is to a jumbo jet to stay in the sky. Hope is intended for God's people, not just to survive, but to be able to succeed and thrive in this world that God's placed us so that we would experience Him. Hope is the basic to life. How many hopeless uh, words have been found in suicide notes? Even if the word itself is not actually written, you can read between the lines. You take away a person's hope and the world that they're in is reduced to something between depression and despair. That's why the very first command of 1 Peter is found in 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. The first command, the other commands surrounding it um, are to help in, in uh, uh, modifying the, the primary command, first command in verse 13, and that is to be filled with hope, to be full of hope. God's people are to be hope filled and over. Flowing. It's strange and sad that many who've known the Lord since childhood will grow up finding a tendency to distance themselves from the Lord. As kids, we tend to trust God with everything. It's encouraging to be around the little kids as they pray, as they talk about God. I try to explain to them, nothing's too hard for God. And they say, of course, we know that. But as we become adults, we tend to step back from our relationship from Him. Maybe these letters can uh, help us, remind us of our own relationship with the Lord when we were younger. Hank, age seven, said, dear Lord, thank you for the nice day today. You even fooled the TV weatherman. Another said, Dear Lord, do you ever get mad? My mother gets mad all the time, but she's only human. Yours truly, David, age eight. Dear Lord, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my father? Thank you, David, age seven. Dear God, Charles, my cat, got run over. And if you made it happen, you have to tell me why. Harvey, age seven. Dear God, can you guess what is the biggest river of them all? It's the Amazon. But you ought to be able to know that because you made it. Ha ha, guess who? You know, I think it'd be interesting too to collect some letters from adults to God. But I'm afraid that such letters would lack the innocence and the honesty of a child. 
Instead, we would be guarded, maybe, sophisticated, fearful, sense of worthlessness, shame, guilt, regret, underscoring the sentences. As we grow up, we tend to lose much on that road to adulthood. But I think we can learn from children about faith and hope. And God wants to take our brokenness that we experience going from childhood to adulthood and turn them into something beautiful by His mercy and grace. Notice in verse number 4 of 2 Peter, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, to whom coming as unto a living stone. Notice the phrase, to whom coming. Now this is not a phrase that has to do with a person getting saved. This present tense verb, coming, is not a one-time event. It's a habit. And so here he's not talking about a person who comes to get saved, but rather he's talking about here a person who is drawing near to God. And so if there is no bent in you, there's no desire to get nearer to God, you're not going to get what Peter's talking about. But if you have a desire to grow closer to God and to go back to childlike faith in God and experience God as our theme has been for this past year, which ought not be a year thing, it ought to be a daily theme of our life, experiencing God, then understand he's talking to us who are coming near, drawing near, wanting to get close to God and experience God, not just on a Sunday morning, but every day of our life. And remember in chapter 2, verse 2, he tells us as newborn babes, we ought to cultivate the desire for God's word. We ought to cultivate. If you have an apathy in your heart, he says you, it's a command, an imperative, you desire God. Most of the commands in the Bible are to do something. This is a command to desire something. He says you are commanded by God to cultivate a hunger and thirst for God. And so he says then in verse 4, as we're coming to God, well, there's some things that he wants us to know about. And in fact, this morning, I want to preach this morning on these verses and look at what Peter has for us. And I've entitled the message, What We Need to Know when getting close to God. What Peter wants us to know when we're wanting to get close to God, when you're coming to Him, when you're drawing near unto Him, what is it that's going to help you? Get close and stay close. Go deeper and stay longer. Let's stand together and let's read these verses. We'll begin in verse number 1. We preached verses 1 through 3 a few weeks ago. We'll pick up in verse 4, but let's begin our reading in verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. If so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming, as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. 
Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation Honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What you need to know when getting close to God. Thank you. Please be seated. He's referring here to the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously, when he says, to whom coming in verse 4, as unto a living stone. He refers to Christ as the living stone. In chapter 1 and verse 3, he referred to Jesus as the lively, living hope. In chapter 1 and verse 23, he referred to Jesus as the living word. Whatever metaphor he uses, the one consistency is He's alive, he's living, he's life-giving. And he says that he is now the stone. Peter develops and explains this metaphor of the stone throughout the following verses. He is told to us, that is Jesus, as the living stone. People may enter into a personal, vital, living relationship with a living stone. He says men rejected Christ, but God chose Christ. Christ and held him to be precious. Christians who are rejected by the world can take heart in the knowledge that we are chosen by God, chapter 1 and verse 1, and chapter 2 and verse 1, and we are valued in chapter 1 and verse 18 by God, and he's going to expound upon that. What is it we need to know when coming near this living stone, when we get near the Lord Jesus and we want to cultivate that thirst and hunger, chapter 2 and verse 2, and we want to get near and keep coming near. I want us to see three aspects this morning. Number one, it'll help us as we get close to God to know what God sees me to be. What is God's appraisal of you? Sometimes it's encouraging just to thumb through the scriptures and find the promises that tell us what God thinks of us. See, God's promises ought not be just mottos to hang on the wall. No, they're blank checks signed by God to take to the bank of heaven. As we take a glimpse into God's 
promises and God's appraisal of us, I, I think that you can get some hope from this as the Holy Spirit, I believe, intended. And the first thing that God appraises of his people, he calls us living stones in a spiritual house. He says Jesus is the cornerstone, the living stone, but he also refers to us as lively living stones. Verse five, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. So again, this metaphor of the stone and the building is taking place. The church is described as a body, but also as a building. And the language here of the spiritual house, I believe, is drawn from the Old Testament imagery of the tabernacle and then the temple. But today, as it was in the Old Testament, as God would manifest his presence through the tabernacle and into the temple, God is uniquely present in and through his church, and just as he was in Israel through that tabernacle and temple. Each time someone trusts Christ as Savior, they are another stone that is quarried out of the pit of sin. And they're fitted into God's spiritual building and the work the Holy Spirit is doing in that life. And it's Jesus Christ who is carefully overseeing the construction with a hands-on approach to each life that comes to Jesus. We're his living stones. We're being built up as a spiritual house. You see, when someone becomes a Christian, it's a supernatural, I said a supernatural transformation. It's not like a tadpole becoming a frog. No, when a person comes to Jesus for real salvation, it's like a frog becoming a prince by the kiss of God's amazing grace. Think of it this way. A major construction project is going on through time as Jesus Christ builds his family. It's called the church, as I've already mentioned. And those who are called out to become a special part of God's assembly as Canaan Baptist Church is one of these called out assemblies where people who have trusted Christ to be their Savior but has taken Him at His word and His beckoning call to follow Him. And a church is a committed body of believers who have decided to follow Jesus no matter what. And Peter describes those of you who became a Christian, a follower of Christ, as having been picked, chosen, called out to be one of his living stones. He has quarried you from the pit of your sin. And he's now chiseling away and shaping you and ultimately fitting you into the place where he deems is perfect for your life. You're part of his building project. There are all kinds of critics about the condition of God's building. There are those who condemn God's building property as worn out, dilapidated, run down, rather than some magnificent building that's being constructed right on schedule. The truth is that God is the master architect and every stone is being placed exactly where he designed it to fit. The project is right on schedule. But there's more. Not only are you a living stone, but he says in verse number five, we are priests 
in the same temple. Notice in verse number five, you also as lively stones are built up in a, built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. In verse number nine, he says royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. So not only are we lively stones, living stones, part of God's architecture project, but we are also priests in the same temple. Of course, not everyone is a preacher, an evangelist, or a gifted teacher, but if you're saved, we are all priests belonging to a kingly order that's been set apart by God. Now, the role of the priest implies more than meets the eye. For a priest would have specific responsibilities delineated in the Word of God. Priests would offer up prayers. Priests would bring spiritual sacrifices, intercede to God on behalf of others. Priests would have to stay in tune with the spiritual side of life. And all of that applies to every believer, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender or your social standing. Perhaps you never thought of it this way before, but it's really true. The Bible says we're all priests in the same temple, but there's more. Not only are you a living stone, not only are you priests in the same temple, but he says in verse 9, you're a chosen race, a chosen generation. Notice in verse number 9, he says, but ye are a chosen generation. Now to help us understand the significance of God choosing, it might help us to take a quick glance at why God chose Israel, the Hebrews, to be his people. I think this will help put the whole idea of being chosen by God into perspective. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Moses is addressing the nation of Israel, preparing them to enter the promised land. Now listen carefully. Moses says to the nation of Israel, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now, let me stop and say there's a lot of good Bible truth that has been hijacked by wrong doctrine. And Calvinism has not really built up the church of the living God, but has destroyed many a good work. But the best way to refute, whether it be Calvinist or Catholics, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, is with truth. We don't have to let the Charismatics and the Pentecostals hijack Bible truth and rob us of the ministry and life of the person of the Holy Spirit. Just because they go into error doesn't mean we have to give up on the third person of the Trinity, God. And just because there's a group that have talked about God choosing doesn't mean that we have to avoid that terminology. It's Bible terminology. But here's what we must understand. Nowhere do you find where God chose anybody to be saved and chose others to not be saved. 
You say, well, he chose the nation of Israel. You know why he chose the nation of Israel? So that the, through the nation of Israel, he told Abraham that all other nations would be able to know God and come to God. It's just that Israel got lost in Israel. And the church has a tendency to get lost in ourself as well. Jesus didn't come just to save some. He came to save whosoever will. But go back to Israel. Moses is telling them that God chose you, Deuteronomy 7 and verse number 6. But listen, in verse number 7, he says, The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. So Israel is listening to Moses, and they might be asking the question, So why did the Lord choose us? Verse number 8 of Deuteronomy 7, he says, But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen for, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Listen, why did God choose Israel? Because of their strength? No. Because of their numbers? No. You, you got to catch on faster. Because of their mental or moral superiority? No. He chose them not because they deserved it. Why did God choose Israel? Because of His grace, a kindness shown to them entirely without merit or part of their own. And simply put, why did God chose, choose Israel? Deuteronomy 7 and verse 8 because the Lord loved them. He chose them out of grace. So the question, now Peter says, you're chosen. God says, as I chose Israel, now I choose you. So here's the question. Why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? Why did God choose us? And the answer is, for the same reason. Not because we did anything that impressed God. It wasn't the size of your faith or your sincerity. It wasn't the goodness of your heart or the greatness of your intellect. It certainly was not because we first chose Him. It was entirely by God's grace. Grace that is motivated by His great love. The Lord chose you because He chose to choose you, period. You, you want to hear that one again? Why did the Lord choose you? He chose you because he chose to choose you. Period. He set his love upon you because out of the goodness and grace of his own heart, he declares, I love you. I want to say I love that. We won't walk around heaven with our thumbs under our suspenders out bragging one another, that's for sure. Instead, we'll be absolutely amazed that we are privileged to even be there. John 15, 16, Jesus said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you. We didn't hunt him down. He hunted us down. He is the eternal hound of heaven. We didn't work half our lives to find him. He gave his life to find us. Being chosen by God says much more about him than it does about us. He's the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. 
Remember that. The good shepherd has chosen you. And when you find yourself slumping in your shame or giving way to your guilt, remember Jesus takes nobodies and turns them into nobilities. He wants you in his flock because he loves you. But there's more. He says in verse number nine, we're also a holy nation. A holy nation. Now, we've looked at holiness over in chapter number one, and the word holy can be intimidating. But don't let it. It's not to scare you. It's to sober us about something that is to be sacred. Remember, when we talked about holiness, it simply means set apart. Set apart. And, and you practice holiness in a lot of areas of your life, but it may not be sacred. You set things apart. Every marriage is holy matrimony. It's a setting apart. I've watched some of you eat. I watch you sanctify stuff. You separate the runny stuff from the solid stuff. If you're like my kids, I don't want my ketchup there. I want it right here. No, not right there. Not right there. Right here. Right here. Not right up there. Right, right over here. As a good father, <laughs> it's all going to the same place. Let's look at it another way. This morning when I was getting dressed, I looked at my tie rack and I selected this tie. I had a number to choose from, but I chose this one. I pulled it off the rack, put it around my neck, tied the knot, and at that moment, the tie became holy. It doesn't look holy, and I can assure you it doesn't feel holy. But it's set apart for this particular purpose. When God says we're a holy nation, He's simply saying you are set apart for a particular purpose. You and I are making up a body of people set apart for a special purpose. What is that? To be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, the King of our church. We are a people set apart for His special purpose and for His glory. Now, if you ever seem out of step with the rest of the world... It's because we march to the beat of a different drummer. We sing a different national anthem and we pledge our allegiance to a different flag because our true citizenship is in heaven. Let go of this world and take hold of God with both hands. You are a set apart. If you're saved, you're a set apart individual. You're part of a holy group. But there's more. He says in verse number 9 and verse number 10, we are God's own possession. Notice in verse 9, you're a holy, you're, excuse me, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation. Notice the phrase, a peculiar people. Verse number 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. He's talking about a possession. We are God's Possession. First Corinthians 6, 19. What know ye not? That your body is the temple of God. 
which is not your own, you're bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are His. We all know the of possessions that may have belonged to powerful people, wealthy people, famous people. And no matter how common that possession might be, that possession, because of it being owned by someone of popularity or notoriety, that simple possession becomes extremely valuable. For example, Napoleon's toothbrush sold for $21,000. Yet I doubt anybody would want to use it. Could you imagine paying thousands of dollars for someone's cruddy old toothbrush? I was telling that to Priscilla last night as I was working on this. She said, I wonder if I could sell mine for five. (laughs) (laughs) Hitler's car sold for over $150,000. The General Lee 1969 Charger from the Dukes of Hazzard, owned by actor John Schneider, driven around this town many times over the the many decades, uh, here uh, last uh, several decades, it sold for a whopping $9,900,000. Hundred thousand dollars on eBay in 2007. Judy Garland's ruby red slippers from the Wizard of Oz were reportedly listed at six million dollars. Jackie Kennedy Onassis' fake pearls sold for $211,500 at one of the large auction houses. JFK's wood golf clubs went for $772,000 bought by Chris Cherry. Not because... They don't help you either, do they? These things did not go because for those prices because they were worth it, but because of who they belonged to. Now get what Peter is saying. You as a child of God fit the same bill. Think of the value of something owned by God. What an incredible worth that is bestowed upon each and every child of God. You have an inexplicable dignity because of the precious blood of Jesus You belong to God. You're a peculiar people. But now the people of God. I love that expression of people for God's own possession. Peculiar people. Not meaning weird. We certainly, God knows we have enough of that around here. But he's talking about a set apart, owned possession by God. The price paid was unimaginably high. The blood of Jesus Christ, and now we belong to him. But wait, there's still more. Not just living stones in a spiritual house, priests in the same temple, a chosen race, a holy nation, God's own chosen possession. But here's another one. We are a people who have received mercy. We have received mercy. Notice in verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let me ask you, have you lived so long in God's family that your memory has blurred? Have you forgotten what it was like before you were saved? As a result of God's mercy, we've become a people who are uniquely and exclusively cared for by God. Some of you have taken on the responsibility of caring for your parents, aging parents. 
They cared for you through your childhood. You're now caring for them. When you became saved, a child of God, God has taken total, full, entire responsibility for the rest of your life. Every nook and cranny, every weight, every care, every trial, every burden, and not just in this life, but all of eternity as well. He watches over you with enormous interest. Why? Because of his immense mercy. What guilt relieving encouraging news that should be. Of all the 12 disciples, none could have been more grateful than Peter. Or if he had allowed, none could have been more guilt-ridden than Peter. Remember, Peter called to serve his Savior. He was strong-hearted. He was determined. He was zealous and even a little cocky on occasion. But the man had known the heights of ecstasy with the Lord, but he also knew the aching agony of defeat. Though warned by the master, Peter announced before his peers, though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended, Matthew 26, 33. And later he said in Luke 22, 33, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Yet only a few hours later, he denied even knowing Jesus three times. What bitter tears he wept when the weight of his denials crushed his spirit. But our Lord, listen to me, our Lord Jesus, your Lord Jesus, refused to leave Peter there wallowing in hopeless discouragement and depression. He found the broken Peter and he forgave him and used him mightily as a leader in the early church. What grace, listen, what mercy. Charles Wesley beautifully captures the theology of such mercy in the second stanza of this magnificent hymn, And Can It Be? Listen, He left His Father's throne above so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Oh. Quickly, got to move on. I want you to see a second thing that Peter wants us to know when we're getting close to God. Not only what God's appraisal is of us, and we saw six things that God sees you to be if you're his child. But number two, I want you to see what he says in verse 11 and 12. Dearly beloved, verse 11, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that is, the unsaved. That, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. The second thing he wants us to know as we're getting close to God is this. Our lives are being watched. Our lives are being watched. Peter begins this practical summary with these words in verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. He's very serious about what he's saying. He's told them, you cultivate a desire to hunger and thirst for God. 
chapter 2, verse 2. He says, as you're coming near and you keep coming near to God, you need to know what God's appraisal is of your life. But he says here, verse 11, dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. I am very, I am dead serious, Peter says in this message he's giving. Beloved, I urge you. But notice the word, the second word of verse 11. Beloved, dearly beloved. What is he saying when he uses the word beloved? He's reminding them again, God loves you. That's what beloved means. You're loved of God. He says in in verse number 11, over in chapter 4, in verse number 12, he says it again, beloved. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses, uh, verse number 7, he talks about brotherly kindness. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 1, he starts out with this second epistle, beloved, loved of God. In verse number 14 of 2 Peter chapter number 3 and 15, he talks about this matter of being loved. Verse number 8, he says, beloved. Verse 14, beloved. He's reminding us, he's reminding these these Christians 2,000 years ago and us today, God loves you. And because of the fact that God loves us, our love relationship with God, it should cause us to be sober in our living in this godless world. There's something deeper than obedience that he's getting to because of duty. He's saying there should be some obedience because of devotion. I don't understand the people of God's mindset that look at, well, I can't come to church Sunday night because it's Christmas Eve. No, your problem is you're not in love with God. Why does... Focusing on God regarding his birthday bother you. That's like we're going to celebrate Brother Autry's birthday. And if I say his birthday is tomorrow, so we're going to celebrate. You just go anywhere you want to go. You just meet over there. You meet it wherever your family is going. You just go meet over there in the name of Robbie Autry's birthday. It makes no sense. But yet God's people do it all the time. The reason why is because we're doing things out of duty rather than doing them out of devotion. And Peter says, I've got something very serious you need to listen to. But I want to remind you, dearly loved of God ones. Peter feels passionate about what he's about to say. He's telling us that in light of all that we are as God's children, in light of God's great work of building his church, in light of the fact that he's appraised you as a living stone, part of his living architectural work in his family, in spite of the fact that you're a royal priesthood, chosen race, holy nation, people for his own possession, you've obtained mercy. He says, now you've got to live a certain way. Our earthly behavior is to reflect our divinely provided benefits. See, for unbelievers, if you're lost, this world is your playground. This is where you can indulge in your flesh and run wild in your sin that put Jesus on the cross. But if you're truly saved, this earth is a battleground. 
It's where we combat the lust that wage war against our souls. That's what he says in verse number 11. For the brief tour of duty we Christians have on this earth, we cannot afford to be, uh, be held back in sin and paralyzed by the guilt of sin. And so Peter says, I've got some, some urgent warnings for you. Our lives are being watched. What does that mean? It means, first of all, live a clean life. Live a clean life. Don't think for a moment how you live doesn't matter. Abstain from fleshly lust, he says. Abstain literally means hold oneself constantly back. And that's verse number 11. Too many Christian schools have lost their temper at ball games acting like the world. I went to a Christian school when I was younger and I remember watching the principal, the assistant pastor, watching them out there arguing, yelling at the ref, throwing temper tantrums. It was the same thing we watched on TV. I remember in high school, at a high school football game where I was playing in high school, I remember talking to the referee standing on the field during a timeout and I said, what's the hardest group that you've ever had to ref? He said, Christian schools. That's what Peter's talking about. So he says, first of all, live a clean life. Number two, he says, leave no room for slander. He says in verse number 12, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, live in such a way that no one will believe what the slanderer has to say about you. The most convincing defense is the silent integrity of the child of God's character. I wonder how many workplaces have helped people go to hell. Because of so-called Christians justifying their anger, their attitude, their words. Oh, I've been around long enough. I've heard it and said, well, construction work, that kind of stuff, it just brings out the worst of people. No, that's called your flesh. Police work, I've heard it. You can't be a policeman and have a clean mouth. So you can't be a soldier, can't be a policeman, you can't be a mechanic, and you can't be a, a construction worker and have a testimony for God. Sounds like somebody's been listening to Satan. What does he say? Number three. He says, notice in verse 12, by your, end of verse 12, by your good works, that, that the evildoers, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. A third thing he says in this concept of people watching us is, do good deeds among unbelievers. In other words, do good deeds, not just for each other, but for the unsaved. Show the unsaved that you don't have any strings attached. In other words, if eating in a restaurant and a waitress drops a plate, don't be childlike and immature and clap like the rest of the 
place may do. Don't bring heap, heaping embarrassment upon somebody. Don't do what the unsaved, why don't you leave your place and act like Jesus and get down on your knees and help pick up the broken pieces? What makes the story of the Good Samaritan so compelling? I'll tell you what it is to me. is that the merciful kindness was done on behalf of a complete, total stranger. And that's what he's saying. He says, by your good works. Peter didn't say, by your good words. The unsaved are watching your lives. When our good works are indisputable, the unbeliever says, there must be something that I need to listen to now. I'll give you a fourth thought. Never forget you're being watched. That's what he's saying. See, my life is being watched, so live a clean life. Don't leave room for slander. People can say wrong things, negative things, but it's like the, the qualification of a pastor. He's to be blameless. It doesn't mean that someone can't accuse, but what it means is there should be no handles for them to grab a hold of. They can, anybody can say something, and, but Peter's saying to God's people, live in such a way that though they may slander you, did they slander Jesus? But they could never prove it. They could never grab a hold of it. All they could do is say it. And don't ever forget that your good deeds, people watch what you do more than they listen to what you say, and don't forget you're being watched. Let me give you a third thought. We saw when we're drawing near to God, you've got to see God's appraisal of you. You've got to remember that people are watching your life, but let me close it with this. Number three, don't ever forget God is for you. If I get anything out of what Peter's writing, that's what I get. Don't ever forget God is for you. That is good news. That is hope beyond guilt. I think the most succinct summary of God's appraisal of our relationship with him and his children can be found in Romans 8, verse 31 through 32. You know that? Brother Cherry, can you pull that one up? I didn't give that to you. I cannot count the number of times I've renewed my hope by quoting Romans 8, 31 through 32. You still staying with me? Amen. Don't check out yet. I want you to get your money's worth. May I remind you that the oft-repeated line from Romans chapter 8 is God is for us. Notice in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I can imagine Paul and Peter sitting around talking. Peter talking about what he was writing in 1 Peter and Paul talking about what he was writing in Romans chapter 8 and they both had the same conviction. God is for me. God is for me. 
In devoted love, God chose you. In great grace, Jesus stooped down to accept you into his family. In immense mercy, he still finds us wondering and he'll forgive us of our foolish ways just as he did Peter and he frees us to serve him even though we don't deserve such treatment. So away with guilt that paralyzes you. Contrary to popular opinion, God doesn't sit in heaven with his jaws clenched, his arms folded in disapproval and deep frown on his brow. He's not ticked off at his children for all the times we trip over our tiny feet and fall flat on our diapers. He's a loving father and we are precious in his sight, the delight of his heart. If you need a little extra boost to make this happen, read Romans 8, 31 through 32. Let me, let me also insert this if I can. Now, this is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It's just a paraphrase. But this is a paraphrase of, of what God spoke to him about in, in Romans 8, verses 31 through 30. And I'm telling you if, you, if this doesn't light your fire, you've got wet wood. Because this kind of stuff will lick the red right off of your candy. Listen to it. Peterson says, Romans 8, verse 31, 32. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's own chosen? Who would dare even point a finger at one of God's own? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us? Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is no way, not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. If you're having a hard time figuring out what we're getting at, let me say it this way. God's for you. God's for you. Say those four words to yourself. God is for me. Say that. God is for me. Again, God is for me. This is not the north. You can say it. You can talk out loud. God is for me. Remember that tomorrow morning when you don't feel like he is. Remember that when you have failed. God is for me. God does not flunk any of his children. He just re-enrolls you. Remember that when you've sinned and guilt slams you to the mat. God is for me. Make it personal. God's for me. Never, ever, ever tell your children that if they do wrong, God won't love them. Don't ever say that. That's heresy. That's, no, that's not grace at all. 
Grace says, my child, even though you do wrong, I will continue to love you. I love you so much that I'm going to help you through this wrong to get you back to what is right. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. But my question is, what about the grown-ups? Jesus loves his adult children, all the grown-ups of the world, red and yellow, black and white. We are precious in his sight. Jesus loves all the teens and the adults of the world. Why do we think his love is just for the little children, innocent and disarming? He loves all of his people. Let me repeat it one more time. God is for you. Would you stand with me, please?